I was thinking as the Edstroms were singing how well that tied together with our memory verse this morning in Romans chapter 5 verses 3 and 4 where it says not only so we also rejoice in our what? Our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope and so there's reason to rejoice in our sufferings. Let's say that together, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. Well, we're going to continue looking in Romans today, of course, and uh, today is chapter 3 again. As I was studying to prepare for the next paragraph in Romans 3, it seemed as though the Lord said to me, not yet. Go back and talk about this first part some more. And so today I believe God would have us look again at chapter 3, verse 9. We're particularly interested in the last three words of this verse. It more or less serves to summarize the first section of the book, chapters 1 through 3. And what one word would summarize chapters 1 through 3 of Romans? What three-letter word? What is it? Sin, right. Starts with S and ends with N. Can you fill in the middle letter? I, right. Very good. <coughs> Actually, that middle letter is the essence of sin, isn't it? It's I. It's self. Self in the place of God. Self in the place of others. That's what chapters 1 through 3 talk about, and it says that all are under sin. Well, let's look at verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. There seems to be a flippant, light-hearted carelessness in the world about sin. This is even carried over to some Christians. And I think the reason for that is that we as Christians too often get used to the darkness around us so that it doesn't affect us or offend us like it should. We are conditioned in our day to accept certain things and to call them something less than sin so that we have essentially the same kind of an attitude about some of these matters as the world has. I think that this flippant attitude about sin is the result of what mankind's view of itself is. Mankind feels that it is essentially good although it may do some bad. Men are willing to admit that occasionally they do something that's wrong, but by and large, men see themselves as being good, doing pretty good, especially when compared to others, whatever that may mean. There's a feeling among many that God arbitrarily calls fun things sin in order to make man's life miserable. They feel it's unfair for God to name as sin what gives pleasure 
to life, or what comes naturally to man's desires. They feel it's unfair for God to call that sin, that God is unfairly sending them on a guilt trip when all they're doing is being human. What man calls an accident, however, God calls an abomination. What man calls a defect, God calls disease. What man calls chance, God calls choice. What man calls only error, God calls enmity. What man calls infirmity, God calls iniquity. What man calls liberty, God calls lawlessness. What man calls a mistake, God calls madness. What man calls weakness, God calls willfulness. Sin is not viewed very seriously by most men unless it harms somebody else. They say, well, what's wrong with it if nobody is harmed anyway? You see, the mistake with that kind of an idea is that people see sin, they view sin, as only affecting themselves or others. They do not perceive its Godward effect. And that's what I want to talk about this morning in part. That is that all sin is Godward, ultimately. Turn with me to Psalm 51, where we see a verse that says precisely this. Psalm 51 was written by whom? By David. That's correct. And Psalm 51 is a confession on the part of David of his sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. By the time he confesses this sin, he has uh, lied to cover up the adultery. He has committed murder of Bathsheba's husband. It's gotten very, very serious. As he asks God to be gracious to him, he says, verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You see, he sensed the guilt of his sin. And then notice verse 4. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. That part of the verse is brought into Romans chapter 3, you'll recall we saw it last week. But notice he says, against thee and thee only I have sinned. Does that not mean that he did not sin against Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Uriah, her husband, when he murdered him? Of course, the answer is yes, he did. But David recognized that ultimately all sin is against God. If it's taking advantage of another person as he did Bathsheba, it is against God. If it is murder, it is the striking down of a man whose life was given him by God, and so it is against God. Ultimately, all sin is directed against God. That's why sin should be viewed very, very seriously. For even though it may not harm 
quote-unquote, another person. And it may not harm me. If it is sin, it is sin against God. And so rather than viewing sin from man's perspective, what we really need to do is to view sin from God's perspective, to see sin as he sees it. Now the text that we're looking at today in Romans 3.9 and those last three words talks about that. It leads us to three important insights about sin from God's perspective. First, what sin is. Secondly, what sin does from God's perspective. And thirdly, what sin or whom sin, rather, involves. Three important insights into what sin is all about from God's perspective. First, let's think about this idea of what sin is. We see that simple word, S-I-N, in our text. What is sin, anyway? A child would perhaps simply answer, well, it's the bad things that I do. That is not an incorrect answer, but it's not a very full answer either. What is sin? Well, there are three things that we might say about the nature of sin. First of all, that it is a condition or it is a state of the heart. It is a condition of the heart of man that is sin. I think we see this suggested, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 29, in these words of John the Baptist. We invite you to turn to John 1, 29. When he sees Jesus coming to him at his baptism, <coughs> and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? the sin of the world. You see, as a prophet of God, John saw the world as God sees it, in the condition or the state of sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse, 20, uh, verse 17, rather where the Apostle says, we'll back up to verse 16 to get the whole sentence, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your what? Your sins. You're still in your sins. In other words, you're still identified with your sins. You're still in that condition. You're still in that state of heart characterized by sins. And so first of all, as we think about sin and its nature, we need to see it as a condition of the heart. And it is ours by birth, isn't it? There in Psalm 51, a verse down from what we read, David said, In sin did my mother what? Conceive me. doesn't mean that uh, he was of illegitimate birth, as some people say. What it really means is that when he was conceived within the womb of his mother, that very conception brought him a sinful nature so that he was born as a sinner. It was a condition he was born into. And we see this throughout the Word of God. I'll just give you some other references. Isaiah 48, verse 8. Psalm 58, verse 3. And then Ephesians 2, verse 3, where it says, 
that we're all by nature the children of wrath. In other words, sin is a nature, it is a condition, it is a state of the heart. It's something more than that, too. For this, turn to Romans chapter 6. In verse 5 it says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, now look at verse 6, that our old self or our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then in verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. And so on. And here we see a second aspect of the nature of sin, and that is that it is a principle or a power within us. It is a principle or it is a power within us that is intent on disobeying God. We'll be talking more about that as we get over into chapter 6 of Romans, and I trust that God will open this chapter to us in a fresh way. One of the reasons that I have never before in my ministry preached through Romans is that I wasn't real sure what to do with Romans chapters 6 and 7. And uh, after a number of years of thinking about that from time to time, God has helped me to understand better what those chapters are all about. I'm anticipating getting to them. But for now, would you simply notice that the second aspect of the nature of sin is that it is a power within us. He sees it here really personified. He sees it as a person almost, a master. It is a principle that lives within us. And then there is, thirdly, as we talk about the nature of sin, that most common aspect of it, and that is the deeds that we do. It's the acts that come out of us because we are by nature sinners. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. He says, this is Stephen speaking here as he is martyred for the faith, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And so here's an example of where sin is said to be an act or a deed. Now, why did they do the deed? Because they were sinners. They were rebelling against God, rejecting Christ and his apostles. The thing I want you to notice is that thirdly, by its nature, sin is an act. And so, to summarize, it is a condition or a state of the heart. Secondly, it is a principle or it is a power within us. Thirdly, it is acts or deeds. Now, let's think about some of the words for sin in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, all under sin, that particular word is the most common word found in the New Testament for sin. It is a word that is related to archery. Have any of you ever played around with a bow and arrow at a camp or elsewhere? Yeah, many of you have. 
I have as well. I've done nothing more than play around with it, and that was probably dangerous. But I have learned how difficult it is to take that arrow, to put it in the bow, and to hit the target. And it is especially difficult if the arrow is in some way warped. What happens when the arrow is warped? Right. It will go in one direction or another, depending upon the way that it's shot and where the warp is in the arrow. It will not go straight. The word that is used here for sin literally means missing the target or missing the mark. And the idea is that God has set before us a moral target that is a target of righteousness and that we have all missed the mark. We've missed the target. And why? Because as an arrow is warped, so we are warped by sin. We are twisted so that we cannot hit the target. One of the most common mistakes in archery is for the archer to draw back and for the arrow to fall short because of not putting enough power into it or the poor aim. It means to miss the target. You and I are like arrows that cannot hit the target of God's standard for righteousness. Someone has compared this to athletes who uh, go to a beach and their purpose there is that they might be able to jump the ocean. Now, can you imagine that? They go down to the beach, they get themselves warmed up, they run back and forth a little bit until they're nice and limber, and then they back up as far as they can, they run toward the water, they take a flying leap, and they come short of the other shore by only a few hundred or thousand miles, depending upon where they're jumping. Now, one person may jump further than another into the water, but no difference, they have all come short of the goal. You see, that illustrates what God is saying here in this word sin. It means we've all come short. We've all missed the target that he set for us. Then there are two very similar words that are used in the original language, which mean to go over or to go aside or beyond something. This is the word that is often translated transgression. And we see it here in Romans. In fact, we have already seen it in chapter 2, verse 23. This particular word is used. Where it says, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? That verb breaking there is this word transgression. It means to overstep a boundary. You see, this was Adam's sin, if we were to define it, to define it carefully. God gave to Adam tremendous authority over the earth. And yet there was one way in which God drew the line. God set a limitation. And that limitation was to express Adam's dependence upon the Lord God. Adam sinned because he crossed that line, didn't he? He transgressed the limitation that God had set for him, and he ate of that fruit and sinned. That is the idea here. It means to cross over the line that is set. Last week in another city here in Minnesota, there was a child who was left playing in the backyard by the parent. And uh, the parent told the child, don't go out of the yard. That's the limit. 
But as children are sometimes wont to do, the child wanted to explore beyond the yard. And that little five-year-old was out in the cold all night long while searchers sought desperately for him. He was found the next morning unharmed. But you see, he illustrates what God is saying here about us, that he sets the limitation here and we cross over that boundary. We rebel against the limits that God gives. We transgress. Then there's another interesting word which God uses to describe sin, and that is the word crooked. This is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, where he calls the generation that we live in a crooked and perverse generation. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What does it mean to be crooked? Well, the the Greek word is skolios. Now, if you've had any connection with anyone who has suffered from scoliosis, you immediately see the connection between that Greek word and our English word describing the disease called the curvature of the spine. In the curvature of the spine, for certain reasons, the spine begins to turn inward until finally it can cause premature death. I recall seeing a woman in Chicago when I was in school there. She was a pitiful thing. I would judge that she must have been in her 70s. She suffered from this disease, was completely bent over so that she could not stand up. She dressed in black, Her hair was long and unkept. It dragged upon the street as she walked around begging for money. Whenever I see this word crooked, she immediately comes to my mind because more than any other person I've ever seen, she fulfills what this word talks about. It means to be crooked, to be bent, to be curved out of shape. It's the opposite of the word orthos, which means straight, and is the basis for our word orthopedics. An orthopedic doctor is one who takes a bone to straighten it, to get it into the right position. The word here is just the opposite of that. It's that which is curved and crooked, and that's how God sees the sinner. (coughs) Now, in Romans chapter 1 again, we see another word that God uses to describe sin. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the word that I'm interested in is that second one, unrighteousness. We'll talk about ungodliness in a moment. Here is a word that is just the opposite of upright and righteous. Basically, an upright person is one who is able to stand. That's the meaning of it. An upright person is able to stand, in a spiritual sense, before God. But an unrighteous person, literally, is one who cannot stand before God. 
This word is used time and again in the New Testament to describe the sinner. Let's turn to the last time that it's used in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11. And notice what God's warning is in this chapter. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. He's talking about the end of time. No more hope for salvation. No more hope, possibility of forgiveness. To be unrighteous and to die in that state means to never to be able to stand before God except in the judgment. What a terrible thought that is. And then to enter into eternity, into the eternal fires of hell, being unrighteous, unable to stand, is a dreadful thought. And then this word in Romans 1.18, ungodly, is a word that means those who have no respect or piety for God. It is the opposite of godliness, one who has respect for God. It's the attitude of disrespect for the person of God. It's a refusal to acknowledge him, to worship him. It describes the sinner who has no place for God in his life. Ungodly. And then there is a word used in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that I would invite you to look at, that further describes sin. <clears throat> and here it says, This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Now the word that the NAV translates godless here is actually men who are without law. That's the thought. Men who do what is forbidden, but who do it with a flagrant, defiant attitude. This is the word that is used in 1 John 3, 4, where actually a definition of sin is given by God himself where he says sin is the transgression of the law. But this is the word used. Sin is to be lawless, to refuse God's standard. This is the same word that describes Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the lawless one, the one who is without law, without any observance of the standards which God expects, the commands which God gives. That's what the sinner is. And then there's one final word I invite your attention to, and that is in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. <clears throat> Romans 5, 20. And the law came in that the transgression, or the offense, might increase. What that particular word is, is different than the other word transgression that we saw. But technically here what this means is a deliberate act of unfaithfulness. 
And it refers primarily back to Adam's sin when he deliberately and willfully sinned against God. The law came in that that transgression, that spirit of deliberate unfaithfulness to God might increase, that is, that it might be seen more clearly. <clears throat> it is not used often in the New Testament. Only in a couple of places is this particular word used. But when the Greeks translated the Hebrew Old Testament into their language in the book that is called the Septuagint, this is a word that they use fairly frequently in the Old Testament as they described sin. It's especially common in the book of Ezekiel. In the Septuagint, they use this word for a deliberate act of unfaithfulness. It is a willful carelessness against God. So those are some of the words in the Bible which describe sin. But what does it mean, then, if we were to summarize all of this? Well, it means that sin is any lack of conformity to God's will. It is a refusal to acknowledge him and to worship him. It is a transgression of the limit that he sets. It means to miss the mark that he has established of righteousness. That's what sin is. W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his devotional commentary, <clears throat> talks about some of these. And uh, interestingly, he goes into some of the root origins of the words that the Bible uses for sin, as we have done in part this morning. And he goes on to say that it means falling instead of standing. Sin means being ignorant instead of knowing. It is diminishing what should be rendered in full. It is to disobey a voice. So all of those things describe what sin is. Now let's think about what sin does. In those three words, the key word is the middle one. All under sin. What does sin do? Well, the world has the idea that sin liberates. If you want to really be free, then you should flaunt God's standards. Disobey them, for God is only interested in restricting. Of course, that's the same basic idea that Satan tried to communicate to Eve. God knows if you eat of this fruit that you'll be like him. God's keeping something from you. The world has maintained that attitude about sin. It gives me freedom. I can express myself. I can be me. I can do it my way. But God says that what sin does is to put us under its power. What does sin do? It puts us into bondage. As the commentator Lydon said, it means that we are under the empire of sin. I read this paragraph from Barnhouse in his commentary. <clears throat> to be under sin is much more than missing the mark or overstepping a boundary or any of the other phrases of sin which we've considered. To be under sin means to be dominated by sin, to be under its power, under its rule, under its empire, under its sway, under its control. This is our nature by birth, our condition by choice, 
and our position by the divine declaration of God placing us where he sees us. So what does it mean to be under sin? It means to be under the domination of sin. To be a part of sin's kingdom, as it were, its domain, and to be enslaved to that. We see a very similar thought expressed in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, where he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, this same phrase is used, all under sin. The person who is still in the condition of sin, who is controlled by that power or principle within him and therefore commits acts of sin, that person belongs to the kingdom of darkness, to Satan's kingdom. In Acts chapter 26, we have Paul relating to us his commission given to him by the Lord. I want you to notice what the Lord said to him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to be to the things which you have seen, <clears throat> but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God. This is something that the world does not recognize. For while they boast of their freedom to do their own thing, what they are doing is expressing their bondage to Satan and to his kingdom. Those poor people, the Sodomites who were down in, uh, Cincinnati, or in, uh, in uh, Minneapolis, on Hennepin Avenue the other evening with their block party, boasted of the freedom they were able to get over the city council, of the victory that they had in, in being able to hold their block party. But my friend, those people are to be pitied because they are enslaved to sin. But no more so than the other sinner. Under the domination, the domain of darkness. This last Wednesday evening, Ron Carlson covered with us in our uh, adult session some interesting facts regarding astrology, UFO, and the worship of Satan. All of us who were present that evening were reminded afresh and anew how very real the powers of darkness are. How very subtle and deceitful are those evil beings as they seek to increase their domination over people. Uh, he reminded us, uh, and I'm sure many of us are aware of the fact, that the game Dungeon and Dragons is one of the more modern ways in which he begins to express his complete domination over people. If you are interested in that, I encourage you to get the tape that Ron Carlson has regarding astrology, UFOs, and uh, Satanism, and see what he has to say about that game and about some others that people commonly play <clears throat> long before that game was produced. 
there was the Ouija board, which was again an, another way in which Satan was able to, to gain even greater power over people. One youth group that I had, uh, the young people, uh, some of the young people got together for a party and decided that they would have some fun with an Ouija board. And so they, uh, there were some girls there at a pajama party, and so they got this thing out late at night, and they began to play with it. And to their amazement, this, this thing began to work, and it began to tell them things that were secret and unknown. And so uh, for a lark, they thought, they began to witness to the Ouija board and to talk about Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. And that Ouija board that they had flew across the room into the wall and slammed into it. Well, needless to say, they were quite aware immediately of the influence of the powers of darkness with the Ouija board. Let us not think lightly, dear people, of what it means to be in bondage, to be under sin, to be under the domain of Satan. The gracious news of God is that when we trust Jesus Christ, we are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son, where there is true freedom. To be under sin means, furthermore, to be under its condemnation. God says, the soul that sins, it shall what? It shall die. Not just physical death, but he's talking about spiritual death, separation from God. To be under sin is to be under its bondage and under its condemnation. And close, we will, with this third word, the word all. Whom sin involves. Let there be no mistake about it. There is none of us that is free from sin. There is no person who's ever been born as a descendant of Adam who has been free from the condition of sin. All are born into the world as sinners. No exception of any time or any place or any person. A-L-L includes all. It includes you. It may be today that you have never been delivered from sin. You are under its domination. You can't control yourself. You are powerless. You miss the mark. God sets the standard. You overstep it. You are guilty. You cannot stand before God. You know that. Well, I have good news for you today. If you are under sin, God can deliver you. There is only one provision for sin, though, and that is in Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men, whereby we must be saved. Salvation comes alone through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. That's true freedom. Sin is bondage. But salvation is freedom. I close with reminding you of this story in Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament when God's people sinned against him. And he sent among them fiery serpents. The serpents bit the people and they died. The serpents represented to them their sin. 
The sin produced death, sure and swift. But then God made a provision for the, for the serpent bite, didn't he? He had Moses make a brass serpent and put it upon a pole in the middle of the camp. Brass in the Bible speaks of judgment. And what that brass serpent spoke of was sin that was judged by God. And God said, if the people, after they are bitten, will but look at that brass serpent in the middle of the camp, they will immediately be healed of that venom. John tells us this is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Dear friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, born into this world without sin, when he died on the cross, became sin for you. God judged your sin on Christ. He was nailed to the tree, and there became sin on your behalf and mine. So that now if we will look to Christ in faith, as the people of old looked at the brass serpent, we will be healed of sin, be forgiven of sin and delivered from its power. Will you do that? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from what? How much sin? All sin. I care not how deeply you may have sinned, how dark the stain may be, how overridden your conscience is today with guilt. If you will look to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him, he will set you free. He has promised. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will keep all of us from thinking lightly of sin, as though it were a game, as though it were liberating. Help us to see how enslaving and damning is sin. And if there be some friend here today who's without Christ, oh, may today that one receive Jesus Christ and be saved. Just as the rain washes away the dirt of pollution, so the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses forever from all sin. May someone here today believe that and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.